I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing China's increasing activity in the Arctic. In January 2018, the Chinese government released its first Arctic policy white paper, which outlines an ambitious polar Silk Road plan and defines China as a near-Arctic state. What are Chinese commercial, political, and security interests in the Arctic? And what are Chinese policy objectives? We're going to discuss these issues today with uh, Dr. Mark Lantain, who's a senior lecturer at the Center for Defense and Security Studies at Massey University in Auckland, New Zealand. And he's also editor of Over the Circle, a news blog covering the Arctic. Thanks for joining us today, Mark. Yeah, thank you. So to start with, can you give us a bit of history about China's interactions in the Arctic? When did China start stepping up its involvement in the Arctic, and, and what were the drivers behind this? In some cases, China was an early participant in Arctic affairs. Uh, for example, China was one of the first countries to sign the Pittsburgh Treaty, which is one of the first uh, legal documents covering the Arctic. And it did that in 1925. But I would argue that China's Arctic policy uh, has deepened considerably over the past 20 years. Uh, it opened up its first research station in Svalbard in the Arctic in uh, 2003. And its policy has only really started to mature, I would say, only over the past 10 years. The main reasons behind this, I would say, is that China has identified the Arctic as an area of importance, not only in terms of its scientific value, but also increasingly because of its economic status. Much more of the Arctic is starting to come open to potential economic activity, be it fishing, mining, oil and gas development. And China sees this as an opportunity, and it certainly doesn't want to be left out of this process. So you've already gotten a bit into what my next question is, uh, which is about Chinese interests in the Arctic and their relative weight. So uh, do you think the Chinese policy is primarily being driven by its economic interests? Or is this really, as some people argue, uh, a larger uh, strategic play? Uh, from what the Chinese have written in this white paper on the Arctic, um, uh, do you think that this is this is the sum total of what China's ambitions are in the Arctic when they talk about their interests? Are they being fully transparent? Right. Well, many Chinese officials have stressed that China's Arctic policy is driven primarily by scientific interests. And there's been a lot of discussion about Chinese uh, contributions to scientific diplomacy in the region, that China wants to find out more about uh, the environmental, the climate effects in the Arctic region, and it wants to set up partnerships with Arctic states, with other uh, non-Arctic states in order to accomplish this. That said, though, we are starting to see, and this is definitely reflected in the white paper, a lot more of an economic dimension, that China also wants to be a partner for countries and companies seeking to develop the Arctic economically. So. The white paper, when it finally came out, and it was uh, in preparation, I would say, for the better part of two years, when the white paper came out, it did serve to clarify a little bit more about uh, what China really wanted from the region. So China is starting to clarify a bit more, to be a bit more transparent about its interests. But there's still a lot of discussion about uh, where China goes next now that the white paper is out. Where do you think that China goes next? 
I'm seeing a lot of activity in regards to uh, joint ventures. Uh, we're seeing this in Russia. We're seeing this potentially in the Nordic Arctic to set up the possibilities of new ports, um, new communications and transportation infrastructure. And I think China really wants to uh, demonstrate that it can provide a lot of economic goods for the region in many different ways. So we know that there are eight states that border the Arctic geographically, and those are the United States, Canada, Russia, Finland, Sweden, Norway, Iceland, and Denmark. China, of course, uh, is not uh, one of those states. And yet China has defined itself in this white paper as a near-Arctic state. So I I googled uh, the distance from Harbin, which is not the northernmost Chinese city, but it's pretty far north. And the distance from Harbin to the Arctic is uh, 2,317 kilometers, uh, which is about 1,440 miles. So um, why is China defining itself in this way? What is this signal? Well, I would say if you've been to Harbin in the winter, you can certainly argue that if it's not uh, an Arctic area, it pretty, uh, pretty much comes close. It's pretty cold up there. But you're right in the sense that geographically, China does not have any claim to be an Arctic state or even a near-Arctic state in that way. So the story is that when China was seeking to become a formal observer in the Arctic Council, this is back in uh, 2013, the term near-Arctic state started to appear in various policy documents. Some academic papers started to make reference to it. Uh, some policy remarks started to use it. And as you say, it did cause a little bit of concern because the geography didn't match up. So when uh, these questions started to appear in the Western press, especially in the U.S., uh, Beijing had to kind of clarify what it meant. And it started to use the term near-Arctic not necessarily in terms of hard geography, but the argument that events happening in the Arctic due to climate change were having a direct effect on China. The big example being uh, the changing weather patterns in the Arctic were starting to have a knock-on effect uh, in China in regards to heavy rains in Beijing, for example, or colder than average winters in Shanghai. And there was a report that came out last year which suggested that changing snowfall patterns in Siberia were affecting pollution patterns in, uh, on the Chinese coast. So the term near-Arctic was used to describe the fact that the Arctic was directly affecting China. Therefore, China needed to have uh, more of a presence in the region to try to understand that pattern. But you'll notice from the white paper that geography has started to creep in again. China's saying, well, not necessarily an Arctic state per se, but one state removed from the Arctic and certainly close enough to the Arctic that it should be more heavily involved. So it's a very interesting, uh, very interesting wordplay here. So how do the activities of other countries, the United States, Russia, or Canada, for example, um, compare to China's activities in the Arctic? Um, And what are the potential opportunities for other countries to collaborate uh, with with China in, in the Arctic? We're seeing some very interesting differences uh, among the uh, the Arctic Eight over how they see the region developing. Far and away, Russia has um, really stepped up its presence in Siberia and the Russian Far East. Um, Previously closed Cold War era facilities are being reopened. There's a lot more discussion about more military assets being moved up there. Russia is seeking to monitor its uh, share of the Arctic, which is considerable, obviously. 
Whereas in the United States, we're still seeing under the Trump administration uh, a bit of ambiguity over where the Arctic kind of stands, not only in terms of economics, but also strategy. Uh, it's a similar situation with Canada. Canada is about to put forward its most recent uh, Arctic policy that will probably come out in a few months. And there's been a lot of discussion about whether Canada should be doing more to develop its Arctic lands. So we are starting to see some differences here. Now, Beijing, uh, what China's seeking to do is, first of all, to present itself as a partner for all kinds of different types of Arctic development. And Russia is far and away been the biggest kind of recipient of this partnership diplomacy. There are discussions about railways, uh, ports opening up in Arkhangelsk, um, perhaps even a fiber optic line stretching from Finland to China. So there are a lot of opportunities that China's put forward to set up all kinds of different economic endeavors. And even going beyond Russia, there is discussion, for example, of ports in Norway and Iceland. There was a recent agreement um, by Chinese firms to potentially develop natural gas in Alaska. And a lot of this is being tied to the fact that China has now identified uh, the Arctic as part of the ever-expanding Belt and Road Initiative, that the Arctic is now the so-called Blue Economic Passage, which could be used for Chinese trade, including Chinese shipping between Asia and Europe and possibly beyond. So there's a lot going on in a very short time. So my read of the Arctic white paper, and you've spent, of course, a lot of time speaking with Chinese officials and scholars about this issue, but it's my sense that China really is looking for a greater role in the governance and setting of norms in, in the Arctic. So um, if you agree with that, then can you talk a bit about how China is trying to shape norms and then how other nations are responding to that effort? Yes, I completely agree. Um, China is very much concerned, and this is reflected in the white paper, that as the Arctic starts to get more, uh, more attention globally, that new types of governance, new types of regulations, laws might start to appear in the Arctic. We've seen examples come out recently, such as the Polar Code, which uh, regulates civilian shipping, as well as a recent agreement that would ban fishing in the Central Arctic Ocean as more of that region uh, becomes open to sea travel. China has stressed many times uh, in many different speeches and documents that it has full respect for international law, including the International uh, Declaration of the Law of the Sea, um, stressing that um, it wants to follow international protocols. But on the subject of norms, things get a bit hazier. The idea is that if a, uh, if a country wishes to be seen as an Arctic stakeholder, not necessarily an Arctic state, but a stakeholder, what sort of rights and responsibilities does that non-Arctic state have? And one of the norms which Beijing is seeking to put forward is that there are certain areas of Arctic governance which should be international, not just the purview of the Arctic Gate. And as the Arctic continues to develop economically, this becomes much more important. Um, it's been described as a, sort of a blueberry pie problem that what China does not want to see is the Arctic being cut up like a pie among the Arctic Eight, and if you're not an Arctic state, too bad. That is the scenario which China is very much against, and that is matched by some of the other uh, non-Arctic states that have a significant presence there, for example, Japan. So the norms that China are trying to put forward, and one could argue that China is almost acting as a norm entrepreneur. It wants to sell the idea of the Arctic as an international space. So this is both out of concern about being excluded from the Arctic as it develops, 
but also really trying to uh, trying to trying to put itself forward as an Arctic stakeholder, an Arctic player, and uh, for the purposes of diplomacy, an Arctic partner. If the Chinese expand operations, commercial traffic of goods uh, through the Arctic, what are the kinds of benefits that this could bring to supply chains and to local economies? And are there potential detriments of such increased traffic for the region? Yes, China is seeking to increase its shipping uh, through the northern sea route, north of Siberia, which would allow uh, vessels from China, for example, Dalian, to um, arrive in European markets as much as two weeks earlier than going through the traditional routes through the Indian Ocean. At the moment, uh, there are only a few vessels that are really capable of making the run, but China's main shipping company, Costco, uh, has made very little secret of the fact that it's very enthusiastic about the Arctic becoming a major shipping lane within the next 20, 50 years, however long it takes. This is definitely getting uh, a lot of attention from some of the major port cities uh, in the Arctic, uh, Murmansk, uh, Kirkenes, Tromsø, uh, potentially even Nakaderi, and perhaps even as far along as Greenland. The possibility of increased Chinese shipping and the necessity for bigger ports, deep-water ports, is certainly um, being taken very seriously by many port cities in the Arctic. There are a few problems, though. For starters, there's only been a very small number of ships, uh, be they Chinese or Russian or what have you, that are properly equipped to operate in that part of the world. Ice erosion or not, there are still a lot of natural hazards uh, going through the northern sea route, everything from bad weather to uh, icebergs and so forth. So any given ship wanting to go through there will need a considerable amount of insurance, any ship going through the northern sea route will also need to be escorted by a Russian icebreaker, and that's mandatory. Because bear in mind that the NSR, as it stands, is still Russian waters. So right now, going through the, uh, the Arctic as a shipping route uh, still requires a great deal of added expense. So nobody is expecting that uh, this region will begin to rival, let's say, the Straits of Malacca or the Indian Ocean anytime soon. Two other issues are having to do with the environmental impact, concerns that if you have any kind of fuel spill, oil spill, trying to get at it and clean it up will become that much more difficult. And the other issue, I would say, is the problem of search and rescue. There's still a lot of the Arctic which is either very sparsely monitored or not monitored at all. This has been a big question in Canadian politics. This is something which Russia is trying to address because, as I said, it's got a very large share of the Arctic coastline. So if a ship gets into trouble or if two ships collide, what kind of facilities are available to provide assistance? At the moment, it's not much. So a lot of these questions are going to have to be uh, dealt with relatively quickly because shipping numbers are expected to go up quite a bit over the next 20, 30 years. Do you have any sense as to how much resources China has actually allocated to the Arctic? And that can perhaps provide us with some sense as to how high a priority the Arctic uh, is for China. I don't know how, the, how transparent the Chinese uh, are in their uh, budgets, for example. Can you, can you tell what they've allocated? And, and do you have a sense as to um, how many icebreakers, ships they have that can effectively traverse uh, the polar region relative to other countries? Okay, in terms of knowledge resources, uh, China is still playing quite a bit of catch-up. Uh, compared to the Arctic Eight, and even compared to some non-Arctic 
states in Europe. I'm thinking the United Kingdom, Poland, France, Italy. China still uh, is developing a knowledge base about the Arctic, not only the geography, but also the local economics, the politics, and so forth. So uh, one of the reasons behind the white paper is to kind of bring together these knowledge resources to say, okay, this is what we will need to find out more about the Arctic in coming years. Now, in terms of hard resources, at the moment, China has a single icebreaker, uh, the Zhuilong or the Snow Dragon, which, by the way, is going to be passing through New Zealand very soon, probably sometime next week on its way to Antarctica. And it's been involved in a slew of Arctic and Antarctic missions over the past, uh, the past few years. A second icebreaker is under construction in conjunction with a Finnish firm, and it's scheduled to be operational probably sometime around 2019. But... There's still the idea that China needs to bring more resources to the Arctic in order to engage in exploration and scientific partnership and possibly even economic activities. The purpose behind uh, the icebreakers, and this has been stressed many times, is to develop a kind of greater scientific knowledge base about the region, about what is happening up there, and about how China might be directly or indirectly affected. But at the same time, uh, the icebreakers are also a bit of a symbol to really underscore the fact that China wants to be seen as a polar stakeholder. And one could argue that China's Yellow River Station uh, up in Svalbard serves a similar role. There has been some discussion about China opening up a second facility, scientific facility, perhaps somewhere in Greenland. But right now that's still in the uh, uh, very early stages. And if you want to look at Antarctica, China's also trying to really further confirm its uh, scientific diplomacy down there. It has four stations in Antarctica. This one is going to be opening very soon. So it's not only a question of China wants to be seen as an Arctic stakeholder, but also as a polar player. So one really important question, I think, is how other states um, in the world, Arctic states really, and non-Arctic states, um, how should they view Chinese involvement in, in the Arctic? Is, is, should China be seen as an opportunity, as a threat, uh, or both? And, and what are the different points of view among states and uh, Arctic scholars like yourself when they evaluate China's role and whether it should be seen as an opportunity or a threat? Very good question. And um in some cases, difficult to answer until we get a better idea of where China is going now that the white paper is out. First of all, China is um, having to kind of walk a very fine line between, on one hand, being seen as kind of a gatecrasher in the region. Like, as you said, as soon as China began to put forward the idea of itself as a near-Arctic state, that did cause a lot of concern, especially in the United States, that this was basically an attempt uh, for China to kind of redefine or to basically insert itself into the Arctic without any kind of um, geographic justification. So that's one extreme that Beijing is trying to avoid. But it's also trying to avoid the idea that it's being too passive, that it does not uh, see itself as really contributing anything to the Arctic and running the risk of the region, like I said, being cut up among the, the Arctic Eight. So some countries have looked at China's inclusion in different ways, uh, and it's interesting to see the different responses. Among the two skeptics, if we're talking about the Arctic Gate, I would group Canada and Russia. Now, Canada has always been very sensitive about its Arctic sovereignty, and this is because the, the Northwest Passage in northern Canada, its status is disputed between Canada and the United States. 
Canada sees it as internal waters, but the United States sees it as international waters. So when China's icebreaker began to operate in that region, there was a little bit of concern in Ottawa that, okay, here's China also challenging uh, Canadian sovereignty. And there was a bit of concern in the Canadian press, I should add, when the white paper made reference to the Northwest Passage, because China's been very careful not to come down on one side or the other. Russia, too, has also been quite concerned about its Arctic sovereignty. And when China did become a uh, formal observer in the Arctic Council in 2013, Russia accepted it, but with the caveat that China is not an Arctic state and the Arctic Eight should take priority over governance. So even though there's been a lot of discussion, and whenever you have a high-level meeting uh, between Russian and Chinese leaders, this always comes up, there's been a lot of enthusiasm for joint Arctic projects. But you can certainly say that many of these are seen as more of a uh, marriage of opportunity. The reason why is that because Russia is still subject to Western sanctions uh, in the wake of the Ukraine crisis, and that Russia is very interested in building up uh, its Far East and Siberian region, China is seen as an indispensable partner for a lot of these endeavors. So that would be the two skeptics. Now, the Nordic region, on the other hand, has been very enthusiastic. And I would add um, Iceland definitely, but some of the other Nordic states as well. They see the inclusion of China as a great economic opportunity. They see this as a way of developing uh, new, stronger economic partnerships. In the case of Norway, uh, diplomatic relations were only restored about a year ago. Uh, in the wake of the Nobel Prize incident. So Norway is very anxious, or should I say Norwegian companies, are very anxious to make up for lost time and potentially engage with Chinese firms in areas related to, for example, energy technology and potentially shipping. And again, the United States kind of sits somewhere in the middle at this point. It's been difficult so far to really draw a bead on the Trump administration's Arctic policy to date. Certainly there is... Um, the concern that China working with Russia might begin to uh, dominate Arctic affairs. But at the same time, there's also the understanding that uh, for the Arctic to develop, non-Arctic states, not only China, but also Japan, Korea, uh, Europe, may also play a role. So we're certainly not seeing any kind of unity or harmony among the Arctic Gate over what does China's role in the region represent. So you talked a bit about China seeing the Northwest Passage as uh, international waters. And I noticed a very heavy emphasis in the Arctic White Paper on international law. Uh, China's assertion that it will uphold the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea and its operations in and its policy towards the Arctic. And for me, this really brought to mind an area of the world that I focus on in East Asia, where we have, of course, the South China Sea. And the Chinese, um, in some ways, have not been uh, observing the Convention on the Law of the Sea and, in fact, rejected the findings of an unclosed form tribunal in July 2016 uh, that was filed by uh, the Philippines. Uh, uh, which regarded China's claim to historic rights uh, within what it has called its, uh, its nine-dash line. So how can China reconcile this approach that it has in the South China Sea and it has in the Arctic? 
Yes, it's an interesting point, and some of this has to do with the timing of when China was openly lobbying to become uh, an observer in the Arctic Council. This was taking place at the same time as the security situation in the South and the East China Sea, for that matter, was really starting to hot up, so 2012-2013. So there was a tendency to uh, kind of link these issues together, and certainly there are similar concerns. Both seem to reflect the fact that China is... Uh, increasing its maritime military capabilities, that it wants to project its power further into uh, the areas outside of the Asia-Pacific. But it's also important to note that China has interpreted, let's say, the South China Sea and the Arctic in different ways. Like in the white paper, one of the first points that is made is that states from outside of the Arctic region don't have any territorial sovereignty in the Arctic. They do have rights, though, in respect to economic and scientific activity. So that was included very early in the paper. Now, the South China Sea is distinct because, at least according to Beijing, the core issue is about sovereignty. Now, it hasn't been a question per se that China is rejecting, at least in Beijing's view, that it's rejecting international law. But rather, where China objected was that international law should not be used to roll back um, maritime space that China has seen as its quote-unquote historical waters. So China's objection to the permanent court of arbitration ruling was that not necessarily that uh, this was uh, rejecting international law, but it was seen as a body that had gone beyond its mandate. And that's where the big dispute between China and some of its maritime neighbors and the United States lies. Sovereignty is a non-issue in the Arctic uh, as far as China is concerned. The question is rather access, not in the case of any kind of territorial claims, but access to resources, at least on the high seas in the Arctic, access to potential partnerships, potential joint ventures, and the possibility of developing partnerships economically, scientifically, and perhaps even politically in the future. So Chinese policymakers have been very quick to point out that difference. At the same time, um, China has also been very clear that it certainly does not want to see the Arctic become militarized in any way, shape, or form, be it from any direction. That would be a nightmare scenario as far as China is concerned, because as soon as you start seeing any kind of military buildup in the region, that could potentially lead to the so-called blueberry pie scenario. So again, the Arctic gets cut up, and if you're not an Arctic state, too bad. Whereas in the South China Sea, as we've seen, um, China has been uh, slowly but steadily stepping up its military and civilian presence uh, in the waterway to the point where it is causing quite a bit of concern among uh, China's neighbors as well as Washington. So I'd say there are some surface similarities, but in other cases we are talking a bit of apples and oranges. Looking forward, what should we expect in terms of China's involvement in the, in the Arctic, and how should the United States and other Arctic Council uh, member states uh, prepare to manage relations with an ever-growing Chinese presence in the region? This is a very important question because part of it tends to go back to what is the future of the Arctic Council. Now, the Arctic Council was created as pretty much the main uh, international, or should I say regional, observer body um, for the far north. So it has eight members. It has a very large number of observers, uh, with more potentially uh, wanting to sign on sometime next year. But the question is, China right now has made it very clear that it is happy and satisfied to be an observer, to work with the Arctic Eight. 
But is that going to be the case, let's say, 10 years from now, hypothetically, when the Arctic continues to open up, that China is more heavily involved in all kinds of different endeavors? Will China be happy to continue to sit in the bleachers with the other observers while the Arctic aid continue to make the decisions? And I would tend to say that I think China will start to quietly push back and say, well, you know, because we have put so much emphasis on the region, because we are investing so much in the region, is there some way that we could, that our role can be better reflected in any kind of future Arctic governance? So I think we will in the future, and again, this could be 10 years, it could be 20, but I think we will start to see China starting to quietly push the idea that, you know, we are an Arctic stakeholder and we should have a voice that reflects that. As well, talking about investment, um, there's no uh, shortage of different infrastructure ideas that China is putting forward, a lot of which are probably going to be looped into the Belt and Road. I mentioned before that in addition to shipping, China very much wants to develop railway uh, links, uh, Siberia perhaps further on to the Nordic region, that it wants to develop deep water ports. And we're starting to see Chinese firms um, really start to spread out through the region. There's a lot of joint ventures and potential joint ventures in Greenland, for example. And that's going to probably have some political ramifications. Greenland and Denmark have been kind of locked in a dialogue about greater sovereignty and perhaps even independence sometime in the future. This could affect fishing. This could seriously affect uh, the possibility of offshore oil and gas development. So China has some very, very ambitious plans for the region. And there will also be the question of if even some of these come about over the next few years, how is that going to, uh, how is that going to be viewed by the Arctic Gate and by others who are saying, okay, how is our role in the Arctic going to be comparing with that of Beijing? We've been talking with Dr. Mark Lantain, who is currently at Massey University in Auckland, New Zealand, and is an editor of uh, a terrific news blog that covers the Arctic called Over the Circle. Um, thanks for doing the podcast with us today, Mark. Thank you very much.